Take your Bibles, if you would, and let's turn to Luke chapter 3, third chapter of Luke, continuing our study in this great book. How many of you this week had your devotional time in the genealogies of the Bible? One of you. That's a very godly person. No, we don't do that. We, we, we typically don't consider the genealogies of the Bible at all. And, um, and it's interesting, expository preaching compels the study of all of the scriptures. So that's one of the benefits is that you don't get to bypass scriptures that often are ignored in evangelicalism. Certainly you don't, in expository preaching, get the, the comfort of ignoring or avoiding controversial passages. By expository preaching exposes God's people to the flow of Scripture, and, and of course there's all kinds of messages that you might hear from passages of Scripture that have an immediate sort of uh, uh, at-face value, practical uh, challenge for your life, and then there are others that are going to connect dots that God uses to ground us where we need to be grounded. And that's really what the Scriptures do when you study it expositorily. You read differently, you study it differently, you verify the teachings of Scripture differently. And so we, we find ourselves in Luke chapter 3, a very, very important part of Luke's argument about this wonderful person, Jesus Christ, even at the start of his ministry in this record, this historical record. And so we're going to look at the genealogy this morning and try to connect some very, very important dots. Some people have asked, what is the benefit? What possible benefit could be gained from trudging through names that no one's even heard of or are very hard to pronounce? And I'm not going to go through all those names. You'll be happy to know. Uh, because many of them aren't, they don't appear in the scriptures anywhere but here. And there are some parallel names uh, to uh, one portion of Matthew's genealogy in his gospel, a particular section of the generations listed in Matthew's gospel. And then there are some here that are significant in the history of Israel. I'm only going to draw out three from this genealogy when we dig into it. I remember that in 1982, the Reader's Digest uh, organization came out with their own version of the Bible. And in order to make it sort of a, an abridged version, they took out the genealogies. They said they were extraneous one of the terms was unnecessary. Well, I just want to demonstrate how necessary the, the genealogies are. And, of course, God put them there. So he believed that in living by every word that comes from the mouth of God, we can understand these things a little differently. It's rather ironic that we dismiss the importance of ancient genealogies when in our digital culture we have become obsessed with ancestry. Ancestors.com or Ancestry.com or various other websites. They'll connect you with your history and your lineage. And when you study it, you find out where your roots are. You, you learn all sorts of interesting things. You might even see some, a few villains not too far up your family tree. You might find out that there were some really strange liaisons. And, and at other times when you, when you study your history, because now you have access at a more unprecedented level, uh, you find some extraordinary individuals. And uh, some years ago, my folks kind of did some chasing around of the rag name and when it came to the country and all that. And so uh, when my wife and I were in England, we chased around uh, one particular name because there is a, a South Carolinian that uh, goes by the name William Rag. He was born there and he, he is memorialized in Westminster Abbey. And so that intrigued me. What, what in the world is a, is a colonist doing memorialized in Westminster Abbey? And the reason is because 
he took over his dad's estate in South Carolina in the 1700s and became quite powerful and involved in colony politics. And they got into a, a dispute because he, for good conscience sake, felt that the colonists were going too far in in going against some of the British tax policies. He, he supported the colonies, but he also, in good conscience, couldn't go further than was right and fair to do. And so he supported some of the British policies. That got him in a lot of trouble. And so eventually it got him in so much heat that he was called an instigator and he was labeled a British loyalist alone rather than supportive of his roots in South Carolina. And eventually um, he was banished to his estate. And then later on, he and his son boarded a ship uh, for London, and uh, that's when they were shipwrecked, um, and he lost his life. But the interesting thing that I found out as I dug a little deeper, which you can find out when you get into your ancestral uh, background, is that um, William Ragg was born to Samuel Ragg in 1714, but it was 1718 when he was four years old that they tried to leave Charleston, South Carolina Harbor to go over to London uh, on one of his father's trading trips and they were seized in the harbor by pirates. Not just any pirate, but Edward Teak. And if you've been to South Carolina, you know that Edward Teak is the famous Blackbeard. And so they were held hostage on Blackbeard's ship for a while. I read the whole story. It's quite a fascination. And so you, know, you never know what you're going to find out in your family tree. You know, our family did a little battle with some notorious pirates. That's kind of fun. Anyway, <laughs> people ignore... The ancient ancestries, but you shouldn't ignore them. You shouldn't ignore them. They're very, very, very important, especially what Luke's purpose is here with this genealogy. Genealogies appear all over the scriptures because of the way God wanted his people to meticulously trace their history. Within Israel, genealogies were extremely important because they established not only your Jewishness as apart from the Gentile nations, they also established your tribal identity. Which tribe did you belong to? According to Numbers 26, it established your uh, land ownership, the titles and the estates and the properties. The land was divided in Numbers 26, and the original division was per tribe. And so you needed to know what part of the, the land was, was where your tribe would dwell by God's blessing. And then also Ezra, chapter 2, indicates that a genealogy connected you with the Levite tribe if, in fact, you were part of that tribe. So it was very important to understand if you were a part of the, the priesthood. And then whether or not you were connected ultimately to royalty, particularly the one line that is traced in all of Scripture all the way through, and that is the Davidic line, the kingship of David and his throne because of the Davidic covenant where God promised that David's throne would be forever. The promise was that one day there would come a man who would, by God's design, be verifiably the one in David's line who would then sit on the throne. And so under the sovereignty of God, the Jews preserved their genealogies, and they did it with, with astonishing accuracy through all the centuries before the birth of Jesus and all the way down to what you find even here in the New Testament accounts. And you remember Luke's already been addressing this if you've been with our study. Chapter 2, verse 36, you remember Anna came at, <clears throat> at the birth and she said, or it says of her, that she was from the tribe of Asher. That was public record. You could find that out. In chapter 10, verse 32, Barnabas is on record as being from the tribe of Levi. You have Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, and a matter of public record establishes him as from the tribe of what? 
Benjamin. It was a matter of record. It was meticulously cared for. It was in the public place. You could go there and check it. In chapter 2 of Luke, verse 4, Joseph was of the house and the family of David, which is why they went to Bethlehem to the city of David for the census, you remember. First century, even Josephus says in his records, in his autobiography, that in the public records he could trace his genealogy. And around the time of Jesus' birth, even the, the very famous Rabbi Hillel could trace his Davidic descent right from the registers that were publicly available. So it was, they, were, they were meticulously kept. They established these many very essential things. And then even within families, there were these private genealogies that were kept and, and private family trees were preserved in their homes and then they would hand them down from generation to generation, especially if you were of the house of David because of the messianic implications for your future generations. Now, there are a lot of theories, just to sort of move quickly here, there are a lot of theories about why Matthew's genealogy is different than Luke. We're not going to go through all of those theories, nor even through either genealogy at great length. But you need to understand why Luke does what he does here and why it's different than Matthew. It'll be very, very helpful for you as you begin to settle in to what Luke's overall point is in including the genealogy right here. Think about it. Matthew, if you go study it at some point, Matthew traces the lineage of Jesus from the patriarch Abraham forward through King David and then from David to the, to the exiled generation in Babylon, 587, 586 B.C., and then from the exiled generation down to Jesus. So you have those generations, 14 from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to Jesus. Luke looks at it from the other angle and traces the lineage of Jesus backwards and he starts with Jesus and goes all the way back to the first man, Adam. So Matthew is concerned with giving his Jewish people a traceable, verifiable record of Jesus' descent through his legal father, Joseph. And as we'll see in a minute, Luke is trying to give the rest of the, the world, particularly all of humanity, but especially the Gentile nations, a traceable history through Jesus' biological lineage, most notably his mother, Mary. So you have Matthew tracing the lineage of Jesus from Abraham forward down to Jesus to establish the legal connection with Abraham and then the Davidic uh, covenant. And then you have Luke, who is tracing lineage of Jesus backward from Jesus back to Adam. Notice verse 38. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That terminology is deliberate and it's going to become very important in a few moments. So what Matthew does, as opposed to Luke, is he gives his Jewish people this verifiable record of Jesus' descent through his legal father, Joseph tracing it back to the ancestor of Joseph, Solomon, who was a son of David. So clearly Joseph is in that line. There was a problem. There was a problem with Joseph descending from Solomon, David's son, because in Jeremiah 22, God had cursed that line and said to Jeconiah, no child of yours will ever sit on the throne. And yet Jeconiah is mentioned in Matthew 1, verse 11, in Matthew's genealogy. So you have a little bit of a problem there if you don't have a virgin birth. 
if Jesus is not just the legal father of Joseph, but it's actually a biological father, then you have a problem because no, no descendant of Jeconiah is ever going to sit on the throne. How did God get around it? He wasn't. Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. He was virgin born. And so even though Matthew records Jeconiah, everyone knows that the testimony of Jesus' beginning was that Mary was with child by the Holy Spirit, so there's no sense in which Jesus was under the curse of Jeconiah recorded in Jeremiah 22. Luke's purpose is different. Luke's purpose, he's already recorded Jesus' divine origin. You remember chapter 1, chapter 2, part of chapter 3, and then even verse 21 and 22. At the baptism, you have a visible and an audible confirmation from God that Jesus is from divine origin. He is the Son of God. He's God Himself. In human form. And so Luke's already established that. And now he's concerned at the beginning of Jesus' ministry with tracing a record of Jesus' humanity. Why does he want to trace Jesus' humanity right here? Because he wants to show that he is part of the human race biologically. Yes, he was virgin born. Yes, he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. But he still has to be human. If he's not human, he can't be a second Adam. If he's not a second Adam, then he cannot die for our sins in our place. The Savior has to be God so that he's righteous, doing what we can't do. And he has to be human so that he is one of us, dying in our place as a substitute for sin. And so just thinking about the comparison here, Matthew traces the legal descent through Solomon to King David and then to the covenant promises made to Abraham that the Messiah would come through his loins. For the Jewish audience, that's perfect. He's connect, Jesus is connected with Abraham and the covenant to Abraham, so he's the promised Messiah. He's connected to David, so he's connected to the promise to David that his throne would go on forever and one would come and sit on it. But Luke is tracing the human descent, not the legal descent. And he's tracing it back, not through Solomon, David's son, but Nathan, David's son. Because Mary is, an, is a descendant of Nathan. Nathan's in this, this genealogy in verse 31. So Luke is tracing the human descent of Jesus all the way back through the human race by his biological mother, Mary. Back through her ancestor, Nathan, which is connected with the house of David, which makes Jesus then connected once again with the kingly line. But what's most important to Luke is what he ends with in verse 38. Son of Adam, son of God. What does that mean? Adam wasn't a son of God in the same way Jesus was. Well, not divine, but human he was. And son of God is an unprecedented term here. It's never used in any other genealogy of a human being. So why is it used here in this genealogy? Because Luke is drawing attention to that terminology. He's been doing that all through chapter 1 and chapter 2. We'll look at that in a moment. But essentially what he's saying here is human beings were made in the image of God. Adam was made in the image of God. So in that sense, he is indeed a son of God made in God's image. And Jesus is biologically connected all the way back to him. Now you can begin to see, just framing it up in your mind, why both genealogies are very, very critical to the identity of the Messiah. If somebody comes along today and says Jesus wasn't the Messiah, Jews do it all the time. You, got, you take them to both genealogies. They're irrefutable. 
It needed to be irrefutable to the Jews that Jesus' messianic claims were traceable and proved so that he is connected with the covenant of Abraham as the one who would come and he's connected with David as the one who would sit on the throne. He had to be of the seed of Abraham. Messiah had to come from the nation of Israel. He had to be from the seed of Judah. He had to be from the tribe of Judah, the Old Testament had said. And he had to be of the seed of David, the family of David. Matthew's genealogy traces that perfectly. It's none other than Jesus Christ. But you also had to have a way around the Jeconian curse because Jesus could not be the biological son of Joseph because Joseph was in the line of Jeconiah and that curse was on. No child of Jeconiah would sit on the throne. He couldn't be the biological son of Joseph. But you also needed irrefutable proof to the Gentile world that he was human, that he was actually the Messiah who came as the God-man and was connected biologically to the human race. Why? Because the Messiah would come as the Christ, the one who would die. He had to come as a substitute and stand in our place. Now, some have said, well, nobody's going to bother with Luke's genealogy because he's tracing it through a woman. That wasn't common. The custom in genealogies was to trace through the men. Why is that? Because titles of land and property and estates were passed through the name of the man, the sons. And so you never did a genealogy with a woman's name particularly, although in Matthew's genealogy there are some names included. That just shows the grace of God. And, And those names are remarkable, Rahab and others, sinners in the list. Sinful men, sinful women. Luke doesn't include any women. He just mentions Joseph here in verse 23 as the supposed father of Jesus. And that's very interesting because Luke is adding words here, even though he's tracing the line through Mary. It doesn't bother Luke that somebody's going to come along and say, well, this genealogy doesn't, doesn't fit because you're tracing it through his mother. It doesn't bother him because it was already supposed that he was just the legal son of Joseph. It was already supposed. So Luke adds those words as a courtesy to the Jewish custom of genealogies through the male. And he's already told the reader that Jesus is the virgin conceived son of Mary and not the biological son of Joseph. So that's why he puts the line in there. It was supposed that he was the son of Joseph. In fact, Luke's grammar here probably should better be translated something like this. Being the son, as was supposed of Joseph, but actually the son of Eli. Who's Eli? That's Mary's father. This is Jesus' grandfather on Mary's side. Some of your translations say Heli with with an H there. So Luke's purpose here is to present the Messiah as connected with all of humanity. Why? Because his mission was to become one of us and die for our sins as a substitute. He doesn't need to reproduce a genealogy through Joseph. That's a legal connection already made. But he needs to produce a biological connection all the way back to the father of our humanity, Adam himself, through Jesus' mother, Mary. Was Luke worried that someone would come along and say, nah, this doesn't fit? No. He's a legitimate historian. It doesn't bother him that somebody's going to come along and see this as an historical record because his purpose wasn't to 
somehow do the same thing Matthew was doing. In fact, it's interesting that David is included in Luke's genealogy, and so is Abraham. I'll talk about those names in a moment. So the, the covenantal line is established through Mary's line as well, and so is the kingly line established through Mary's line. Remember, it comes through Nathan, not Solomon. David's son Nathan rather than David's son Solomon. Curse on Jeconiah was through the Solomon line. Nathan was clean, not under Jeconiah. So Jesus could be the biological son of Mary. And Luke's whole purpose has nothing to do with the legalities of his right to the throne. It has everything to do with his human connection to it to prove, oh, he is the Messiah because the Messiah would be a man. The Messiah would be the son of God, the God-man. By the way, Jesus' opposition, the Jews in Jesus' day never refuted any of these genealogies as to their tracing Jesus to the throne of David. There isn't one account where they were able to refute any of his, these present genealogies that appear in the New Testament or even those that might have been extant outside of the New Testament. Those genealogies that present the Messiah as connected to David and Jesus being that Messiah from these gospel records. Even Jesus' enemies didn't refute that if these are actual records, they prove he belongs on the throne of David. They couldn't refute that. So Satan comes along and makes a different attack. He says, well, he wasn't really God. And we've seen that, right? Cult after cult. Well, Jesus isn't really God. Well, you have so much evidence from the divine record that, that led up to the baptism. And you know what happened at the baptism. God the Father speaks audibly and the Spirit descends visibly in the form of a dove or like a dove, and remains on Jesus. That's the Spirit's affirmation and anointing. The Bible says He permanently rested on Jesus. So that is His empowering and His divine affirmation. And then the audible words, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. That is God the Father speaking words that He had inspired the prophet to speak in Isaiah 42 and Psalm 2. Same terms. The son in whom I am well pleased. My son, this day I have begotten you. Those are messianic titles. And so God the Father affirmed that at Jesus' baptism. He is authenticated as divine. So when someone comes along and says he's not God, that is refuted here. The other side of the heresies have been, oh, he's not really human. He was never really human. He was just sort of a... An apparition. He was kind of a ghost. Or he, he was just sort of a divine angel that came down. Not at all. Luke traces it right back to Adam biologically. He is a man. He is the God-man, but nonetheless, 100% biologically a man. This is his human identification. This is why it's here. I just want to draw attention to three names and then... And then we're going to just draw some implications. First of all, his kingly connection through David. His kingly connection through David. This is part of his human identification. Verse 31. He is the son of Nathan, the son of David. Now look back at chapter 1 of Luke and let's just trace how Luke connects these dots. Luke chapter 1, you remember Gabriel was visiting Mary to announce that, that her son was going to be this holy child. 
that she would be with child by the Holy Spirit. That's in this first chapter, you remember. But notice verse 32. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. That's a direct reference to the Davidic promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you go back to 2 Samuel 7 in your your own study, you can read from verse 12 to 29, and you will see God promising that throne to one who would come. He would be the King David of forever. He would be the one who would sit on the throne forever and rule over his people in righteousness over the whole globe. That was promised, and that same terminology is used by Gabriel to Mary here. His kingdom will have no end. Turn over to verse 69 for a moment. This is Zacharias. He is prophesying at the birth of his son John, the forerunner. Verse 69, And and God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So there is this kingly connection to the human being, Jesus His divine origin is made obvious, but even back when his divine birth was being announced, there were these great connections to the second Samuel covenant given to David that this is the one. You can't get around it. It's very, very clear that if David appears in Jesus' human biological genealogy, then he's in the line. He's in the line. This is that one. This is why God said... In verse 22 of Luke 3, you are my beloved son. What son? The Messiah, the one that I promised would come and sit on the throne. That one. In fact, in Revelation 11 verse 15, at the very end of the time when Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom, Revelation 11:15 says the kingdom of the, this world has become the kingdom of of the Lord and His Christ. There's the word. The Anointed One, the Messiah. And He will reign on the earth, it says. And He'll reign forever and ever. So even at the end of Revelation in the Bible, not the book, but the whole sweep of Revelation, the Apocalypse itself says that when He sets up the kingdom, it'll have that same language. This One, the Christ, will reign on that throne. So Jesus in His biological lineage has a connection through his mother to the Davidic line. He can reign on the throne. He also has, secondly, a prophetic connection, or what we might call a covenant connection. The connection of promise, the connection of the covenant. Notice verse 34, he is also the son of Abraham. Abraham, very, very important name, if you remember, because of what Luke 1 had said. Go back to Luke 1. Notice Luke chapter 1, verse 54. Here you have Mary, because she's been told about this miraculous conception, and she's visiting her cousin Elizabeth, who's also been, she's conceived in her old age by the power of God, and she's speaking prophetically and singing And verse 54, notice, right there in the middle of this young teenager's 
prophecy or song, she says that God has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Here you have Mary realizing that this one who was announced that she would bear will be this same Messiah connected to Abraham. She knows that the one coming out of her biology will have that connection to the covenant. He will be the one who would bring about the blessings promised in that covenant. Notice verse 73 of chapter 1. Zechariah's prophecy. He went on from speaking about David to speaking about Abraham. Verse 73. Verse 72, rather, to show mercy toward our fathers, to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. There it is. So even Zacharias in his prophecy connects Jesus with Abraham and this promise, this prophetic covenant. Abraham was the first to whom God revealed his promise that he would bless the nations of the earth through his loins, through one who would come. Yes, all the way back in Genesis 3. Yes, to Adam and Eve in the curses from God after they had fallen. Yes, it was said that a seed will come, the seed of the woman, and he will crush evil. He will crush the serpent's head, the seed of the serpent. He will do away with evil and sin by dying on the cross, and that redemptive foreshadowing was given all the way back in Genesis 3. But not until Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 did God call Abraham out of his Gentile pagan worship and give him the covenant, through you I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. Through your loins, through one who would come. To fulfill that promise, Jesus had to come. And how was Abraham to experience that blessing? Romans 4 tells us what happened in Genesis 15. He went outside and God said, See the stars? I'm going to bless nations through your loins as much as the, more than the stars of the heaven. And it says Abraham believed God and as a favor from God, as a grace from God, it was put to his account as a righteous covering for all of his sin, past, present, and future, done in a moment. He was totally forgiven, totally God's child, completely and utterly considered righteous. By faith, that's it. Romans 4 picks up the theme and says that every one of us who believe in Christ by faith, that's how it's done. People today say, I want to bring uh, my faith in Jesus Christ along with my rituals, my faith in Jesus Christ along with my family pedigree, my faith in Jesus Christ along with my parents' membership at this church or in this denomination, my faith in Jesus Christ and my philanthropy, my altruism. None of that works if you're believing in Jesus for your salvation because Jesus is connected to Abraham biologically and Abraham is the father of all of our faith. What does that mean? He's the model of how salvation comes by faith alone. So Luke is even making that connection. He's saying this is the kingly connection and then there's this covenant promise connection. He's not only the one who would sit on the throne forever, but he alone is the only one who can save you by faith alone. Because he's the one that came out of Abraham's loins to do just that. Amazing. And then finally, it can't resist this verse 38 of the genealogy. 
the son of Adam, the son of God. This is the priestly connection. This is why Luke writes his genealogy. Yes, he's going to trace Jesus to the throne of David. Yes, he's going to trace it to the covenant of Abraham. But he's going to trace it all the way back to Adam and all the way forward to you and me. You're in Adam. I'm in Adam. And that means all of us, no matter how many kids we have, how many generations have come and gone, sin and offensive sin against God that is worthy of His absolute wrath and condemnation has covered the globe. As I read in Romans 5, one transgression, sin just destroyed it all. And when God brought the law to Moses... And said to Israel, oh, you think you know the standard of righteousness that you've been violating all these generations? Let me tell you what it really is. Here's the holy standard of God which you can never break, even in your thoughts, your motives, your heart, or any of your conduct. That's the standard. And it just blew their minds. How could we ever measure up? Well, I'll tell you how you're going to measure up. You're not going to buy your salvation through the law, but I'm going to remind you of how you can never do any works that are good enough for me by, by making sacrifices all the time, every year, and then through the year. And you're going to have all these meticulous rules, and it's going to, you're going to have to stay within those parameters because I'm hemming you in to force you to stare at what you're unable to do. That was it. Think about it. Think what Luke is doing here when he says, son of Adam, son of man. Jesus is in the biological line as, a, as he's part of sinful humanity without being sinful. He entered into the human race. Go back to, ver, to chapter 1. Remember what Gabriel said to Mary. Verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Notice verse 32, he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. This is the true Son. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 32. He's a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. That was... That was language associated with the Messiah, the Son. Zechariah had said it earlier, chapter 2, verse 26, or Simeon. You remember what he had said? Hey, the, the Lord promised me that I wouldn't die until I'd seen the Lord's anointed one, the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Christ. And he stared into the face of the baby Jesus. So what is Luke doing? He's taking that genealogy of Jesus biology all the way back to Adam so that he can show he can actually be a second Adam. We're all the offspring of God. I mean, Paul even said that the poets recognize that in pagan Greek culture. Acts 17, he said, even your poets say we're all sons of God. Well, what did he mean? We're all saved? No. He just meant you're all made in the image of God and you're all part of humanity. And if you're part of humanity, that means you have no covering for your sin. The only covering for your sin is in another man, the God-man, who came as a second Adam. I want to show you that just briefly before our time is gone. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. It's just amazing what Luke does to connect all these dots. And then it's all through the New Testament, even in Paul's words here. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 20, in, in reference to the resurrection, I love this. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, I was reading it in Romans 5 earlier. 
by one man, sin is so bad, rebellion is so proliferating, so permeating, so evil, so condemning, that through one man's sin, every other human being, by the fact that they're of human nature, is totally and utterly corrupt. Dead spiritually, as Adam was in that moment, and therefore dead physically, because the physical death is a, an outward manifestation of what's dead on the inside. You may not think you're bent toward evil if you happen to have grown up in a system that said man was neutral, but you're not neutral. You don't have to teach kids evil. They're bent that direction. Romans 1 says it. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness by nature. We're under the wrath of God by nature. We're bent against Him by nature. And the physical death of every human being is proof that all of that's organically true. It's constitutionally true. And so Paul says, since by a man came death, by a man also, notice, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. It has to be that way. Go down to verse 45. Again, speaking of the difference between the resurrected body in glory and this human body which is still going to die, even though you might be saved on the inside. The outer man is still experiencing the remnants of the old death. Verse 45, So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. We have, as Christians, in Christ, resurrection life. Verse 46, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. He is a man. Jesus is a man. That's what Luke was establishing. And he was establishing that Jesus of Nazareth was the only one that fit this description. The only one. No one else fits the description. No one else is the one man of Romans 5 who, through one act of righteousness, made life reign for everyone who comes to him. No other man fits the description. No other man can be called the Son of God in the way that Luke points it out here. That's why he uses the term Son of God at the end of verse 38 because it's already been, he's already been called a son so much in the first two chapters and then it is baptism. He's my beloved son. He's the spiritual son. If you stay in Adam, when you die, if you're still in Adam instead of in Christ, it's over. It's over. It's over before it began. You were born in Adam, born in sin, over, dead. You cannot live spiritually. You will not have anything but the judgment, Romans 5 says. Condemnation brought judgment. It's appointed unto men once to die, then comes judgment. When you meet God, you leave this life. If you're only in Adam, you're only in the first Adam, and you have no second Adam, it's over. You will spend eternity paying for being in the first Adam alone. Eternity. So God sent a second Adam. And he's one of us. So that when he died, I could be sure. He was God, so he's righteous. But he was man, so he's one of me. He could die in my place. It would be acceptable. Acceptable because it was a sinless sacrifice. Acceptable because it was the death of a man. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. 
And I'm so thrilled that God sent a second Adam. When someone says to you, well, Jesus isn't the only way. So ask them this, what other man met all the narrow lineage requirements that are listed? What other man has done that? If someone says there are other saviors, you just need to ask them, what other man has met those narrow lineage requirements? What other man has fit every traceable detail within the bounds of Jewish history? What other man? Even Jesus' own enemies at the time didn't refute it. What other would-be savior was virgin-born or fulfilled over a hundred Old Testament prophecies in his first arrival as a baby in Bethlehem? What other man was announced by the verifiable forerunner who fulfilled Old Testament prophecy in describing his forerunning ministry? What other man was visibly and audibly affirmed by God as to his divine origin and his baptism? Who else has the traceable legal lineage through Joseph to the throne of David and to the covenant of Abraham? And who else has the traceable biological lineage back to David, Abraham, and all the way to the first human who devastated humanity in sin? What other man fits that description but Jesus? I'll tell you this. You know why Luke sticks it here? Matthew puts his genealogy at, at Jesus' birth because it's important to establish his legal right to the throne of David. Luke doesn't put it at his birth narrative. He puts it at the beginning of his ministry. Why? Why does he do that? Well, notice, God had just affirmed him as the beloved son the end of the genealogy mentions that he's connected biologically to the Son of God. And then notice chapter 4, verse 3. The devil, when he came to tempt him, said, If you are the Son of God, notice verse 9, If you are the Son of God, Satan himself is going to come and tempt Jesus for Jesus' vindication as the very Son of God. Look, if he wasn't the Son of God, and he wasn't a true man and true God who could fulfill this role... Why would Satan, the Lord of all evil, why would he bring it up? I'll tell you why. Because he wants Jesus to do one of two things. He wants him to say, you know what? I am God. And I'm not doing this human thing. And forget about being a man and substituting. Or if he could get him to do the other thing. You know what? I'm just a man. I don't have the power. If Satan, by evil means, could defeat Jesus, then he could prove he's not God. If he could get Jesus to run back to heaven before he does the death thing, then he could prove he's not man. Why do you think there's always cults that say he's not God and always cults that say he wasn't really a man? Because it's Satan at work, the very things he was trying to tempt Jesus in here. And he says, well, if you are the Son of God, clearly he wouldn't have brought that up if it wasn't the truth. In fact, if you can just look over in chapter 4, verse 33, they were in the synagogue. There was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice. Here's what the demon said, verse 34. Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. <laughs> what is that? That's the terminology Gabriel used with Mary in chapter 1. He's the Holy One of God, and because of this, he'll be called the Son of God. The Holy One of God is the Son of God. The Son of God is the Messiah. The Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth verifiably, legally, and He's 
a human being verifiably, biologically. It is absolutely irrefutable, meticulous, sovereignly laid out, and the dots are connected. If you end up leaving your soul with, in the care of your first ancestor, it's over. But if you come to the second Adam, man, all your sins completely covered. Your eternity secure with him as he sits on his Davidic throne forever. The covenant of spiritual blessing, yours, as promised to Abraham. You'll sup with Abraham and David in the kingdom as you worship around the throne of the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Christ, the Messiah. Don't leave it with the first Adam. You, you try that, it's over before it begins. Come to the second Adam. He did what the first Adam could never do. And because sin abounded, grace did much more abound in Christ. Bow with me for a word of prayer. Father, thank you that it was your blood and your righteousness that paid for our sin. Thank you that you have given us this great, this great way that Luke lays out the biological connection and shows our solidarity with the first Adam and our human connection to the second Adam. How sad for people to be connected to Christ by humanity, but not spiritually. It's because they must be connected by faith. The faith of the kind that Abraham expressed. The faith of the kind that David expressed. The faith of the kind that every believer in Christ expresses for the covering of their sin. Faith alone. Lord, how could we ever thank you rightly for the blood and righteousness that you demonstrated as the God-man. The blood you shed, the righteousness that you proved, and the power of the resurrection given to those who now reign in life in you. How could we ever adequately thank you? Well, we, we are grateful that you didn't leave this genealogy out, but you put it right where you put it for our edification, our growth, our strength, our, our greater faith. And thank you that you withstood what needed to be withstood. You laid your life down, took it up again, and now you call men to repent. You call women to repent. And we pray for lost souls today, that they would reach out to you. And as we worship you with this final song together, Lift us up in the spirit of wonder and love and praise. For your sake we ask it. Amen.